Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 22 into the third chapter, uh, but, or into the second chapter, sorry. But I'd like to begin reading in verse 13. So it'll be a longer section, but gives us the context of Peter's uh, commands here in this section of the book. So it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and we'll read into the second chapter. Listen well, this is God's word. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called, called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tra tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And indeed, he was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of men as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls but the word of, our, of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and please pray with me now for the Lord to bless his word to us. Most merciful Father in heaven, we pray that you would work powerfully by your word now to give us all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might walk worthy of Christ, that we might bear much fruit, that we might grow 
knowledge of you in endurance and patience with joy and that we would give thanks always that you have qualified us to have a share of the inheritance of the saints in light and that you have ransomed us, have delivered us from the domain of darkness by the precious blood of your son. Please have all these things come to mind and be clear to us and transform us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I personally have not had the experience of studying abroad, but I've had conversations with people uh, in the church where you've gone and you've lived in another country for a period of time studying. And for some people, I, I actually don't know if anybody's experienced this, but I knew some people in school that were actually foreign exchange students. And so they would live in a home with uh, people that are from China or something like that, and they'd come and live with an American family for a period of time. And just take a moment and imagine what it would feel like to be one of those people. Uh, plop down into a different culture with a different family. I mean, it's one thing to just go into another country, uh, but it's another to have to live with people and they have very different customs. And, and I imagine there's, <laughs> there's probably a moment for that person where they, you know, think, I got to get out of here. This is wild. I, I can't wait to go home where I don't have to do things the way that these people do. This is so alien for me. Different food, different customs, different ways of, of showing respect and all that sort of thing. And my concern for us and why I bring this up is that I think often we approach the Christian family that way. Is that we show up for fellowship or for worship, and yeah, yeah, I'll go along with this while I'm here and while I'm with these people, but I'm very conscious of the fact that I will leave and I don't have to keep following these customs or put up with these people. And I, I just encourage you to, to, you know, ask yourself that question. Am I, do, do I, when I come to worship and fellowship, it's my attitude of putting up with, going along to get along, or is there more? And in the passage that we're looking at, Peter is going to be pressing the congregation that he's dealing with, that they have to begin to think about the Christian brothers as the essential family that they have in this life. Just as, as a as a review of some of the things that Peter's already dealt with. He's, he's talking to people who, in my opinion, are those who were actually of the exile, who, who now the time has come for the salvation of God to come. And, and the hope is maybe God is going to restore them. Others will think that it's, it's more just the, the spiritual exile that all, all Christians experience in this world. But either way you take it, these are people who, as far as they relate to the world, they feel like pilgrims and sojourners. And yet Peter has been encouraging them over and over again. There is an inheritance for you. You have a father in heaven. All these things are laid up for you. This really is the day of salvation. Come to the people. And so now serve God with your whole life. Make yourself holy and realize that he is a God to be feared as you walk on the earth before all these nations. 
And with all that in the background, he comes to say, I- I've told you how you need to think about your life. I've told you how you need to think about God and relate to him. Now, how are you supposed to relate to one another? You have him as your father, but what about the brothers and sisters that are around you? And how will you relate to them if you come into this great salvation and given this great inheritance? And so specifically in this passage, what we want to think about tonight is that the saints, we saints, these saints, must love one another as a family born and nourished from heaven. The saints must love one another as a family born and nourished from heaven. And we'll look at this in the two sections. Peter gets at the two metaphors uh, that he uses to describe the family. First, with the image of a heavenly family, and then a heavenly food. So heavenly family will we'll cover the last bit of chapter 1, and then the first section of chapter 2 is the heavenly food. So let's start by looking at verse 22 and this heavenly family. He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. So he, he begins by describing this heavenly family as a consecrated family. The word that here is translated uh, purified in my Bible. Uh, co- consecrated, I think, is the best way to take this. And uh, maybe a, a good image to have in your mind of consecration is in Exodus 19. If you remember, they get to Mount Sinai, and the Lord tells Moses to command the people, consecrate themselves, for tomorrow I'm going to meet with them. And so he gives these stipulations for ceremonial holiness, because the Lord is about to descend on Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and fire, and they're going to meet with the holy God. He says to them that these are people, he's given all this context for Peter, and he says, since you have, or because you have consecrated your souls, and don't don't think souls as in sort of the wispy, (laughs) immaterial part of us, although that is a way to define soul in a more theological context. As far as biblical literature is concerned, it's your life. It's you, it's your whole self. And so even, even more than that, that image from Exodus 19, their consecration was primarily outward. He calls them that their whole life be consecrated. Their whole life be set apart to God and and, and fit for his presence. And so he says that they are purified or consecrated. They consecrated their souls in obeying the truth or in the obedience of the truth. And that's an important thing. We've been hearing about this very well the last few weeks in in Colossians. It's no longer the external ceremonies that were the shadows, but now the spirit and in truth life in worship has come. And so the primary way of consecration is not by washings and and these sorts of things or sprinklings with, uh, with the blood of bulls and goats, but instead it's the consecration that comes by the transforming of our mind that's, that happens by the word of truth being driven into our hearts and minds, as, as Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this consecration that's done by the truth, we have to reckon with the fact, because uh, I, I bring this up often, 
uh, I, I tend to think that I just need to read, 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 and I need to um, read a bunch of theology. And I tend to, personally, and I would just make you realize you can read the Bible in a fleshly way. And that's what I am tempted to do in reliance on your own intellect. Oh, look what I observed. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, that's what I tend to do. Um, but this consecration comes in, obedi- in the obedience of the truth through the Spirit. That's all over the, the New Testament. If you pay close attention, word and spirit. If you go through our confession, word and spirit, word and spirit, word and spirit. How, is, how am I going to be changed? Not just by fleshly reading of the Bible, but by the Spirit of God driving his word into my heart and reshaping me so that then I am one who can meet with God to go back to that image from Exodus 19. And, and all of that is a fulfillment, of course, of the fact that God said when his spirit would come, he would take out of us a heart of stone, put into us a heart of flesh, and write the law on our hearts. And that is what sets apart this heavenly family, the spirit changing us and writing his word on our hearts. As far as this image of of consecration is concerned, um, this might be obscure, and maybe you haven't looked at this recently. I encourage you to look at it later, but the image of the Leverite from Numbers chapter 6. So that was the pinnacle of consecration uh, for the layperson in ancient Israel. During their time of sojourning, this was a person who he made a vow that he was going to, it's the word, if you read the Greek, a Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses the same word here. Uh, he was going to consecrate himself. He would not cut his hair, he or she, and, uh, and it would be in, sorry, he, he wouldn't eat any grape products, which you might sort of puzzle at. Why, why is he not going to have any grapes during his time of sojourning? Well, grapes, if you pay attention, have to do with the promised land. Oh, I can't wait to get to the promised land where there are grapes. So if I were to enjoy these grape things now, it would be me being satisfied while I'm still wandering in the wilderness. And really, what the people at that time should have been longing for is to come into that place where God was going to set his name and set up his dwelling place and he was going to dwell in their midst and he was going to organize all this. They should have been longing for that as opposed to, well, I've got a really good glass of wine here, so I think I can make it through this time of sojourning. And, And so they would set apart their life in that way and not touching unclean things and all of that at the end of the time, they would their hair grows long, and then they would cut their hair and offer, this is a little strange, but offer their hair on the burnt offering at the end of that time. And that showed that that whole time of my life where I was in this vow was given to God. I'm dedicating myself not to be content with the things below, but as we heard this morning, to be, have my mind for them, it was fixed on the promised land, but as we know from Hebrews chapter 11, it really wasn't about that land. They were longing for the place whose builder and foundations are, whose builders are in heaven and, sorry, foundations are in heaven and builder is God. That's what they were longing for in that time. And so that, that is 
the, the basis of everything else that he's going to say is that sort of life completely dedicated, consecrated, given to God will be the basis for all the love in the family that's going to come. And so as you think about this image, I think we should be asking ourselves, do I really want that kind of consecration? I think if we're honest, probably not most of the time. That we really are, our affections are drawn down to the world. We're enjoying our great products in the wilderness and not longing for the fullness that the Lord is preparing for us, the inheritance that's laid out before us. And just as far as this consecration image is concerned, if you do think, yeah, I, honestly, I think I am really satisfied with the things of this world. I really am not concerned to dedicate my whole life to him. I'm not talking about, you know, monk sort of life, you know, where you go up in a cabin and you, you do some sort of asceticism. In the, in the New Covenant, all of that externality isn't really the focus we've been hearing about that. But it's the, the, the sense that my whole life is a life now brought into the Holy of Holies. And so I'm living before the face of God. You, you've probably heard the Coram Deo um, Latin phrase. That's, that's the idea, but that could make us think, well, don't you know you live before the face of God? You, he's watching in this very moralistic way, but instead, <laughs> think about the description of that presence from the Aaronic blessing. Make, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and bless you. <laughs> the, the life of consecration is about enjoying being in his presence by Christ through the Spirit in all things, that, that everything I'm doing, now I'm thinking, I'm doing this in the presence of my God, and I want to delight in him and with him. And that, again, if we don't, if we don't think in those terms, this, the rest of what Peter is admonishing them with or exhorting them to isn't really going to work. Because it's going to be, I want to live in the family like we all live before the face of God. Whole lives consecrated by the truth in the spirit. And so it's a consecrated family. And he starts to describe what this family looks like. And it is a loving family. I think we, we should have all been anticipating that. The sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart. This love here, when it talks about sincere brotherly love, it's without hypocrisy brotherly love. So it's not love where you, you've got the mask on of, ah, oh, yeah, brother, we're, you know, the sort of way that it's very easy in Christian circles to be, you know, putting on the face of, we all love each other and not, maybe not so much. It's not that. It's not the mask. It's true, genuine love for the brethren it's sincere, and it's also from a pure heart. So think about what an impure love is. It's a, it's a love with mixed motives. Why are you loving this person? Well, I love them, but I also sort of want to get something out of them. 
No, a love that is, that is just love for the brother because they're my brother. That's the love that he's calling them to. And it's fervent love that it is, we're supposed to love them fervently with a pure heart. The word is like stretching out for the, it's often used in prayer of fervently praying, oh, please, God, do this. But imagine that now with love of, I, I can't but stretch out to you. I'm longing to work for your good. That's, that's the love that the family is supposed to have. And, and to il- illustrate the two sorts of the wrong kind of love and then the right kind of love. For the wrong kind of love, I don't know if you re- remember, I've read recently the story with Ananias and Sapphira. After the church has now consecrated themselves, they're, they're sharing everything uh, as everyone has need. And Barnabas comes and he brings this great amount of money from having sold property. And then Ananias and Sapphira arrive and they've sold property too. And presu- most people think that they're like, oh, well, look at how well it went for Barnabas. I'm going to do that too. And so they bring a portion of what they made from the field. And they act like they actually gave all the money from their field. And this is a crucial moment for the church because what's being tested is their love. Whether or not they're really consecrating their lives to the love of the brethren and dedicated to God. And they lie and then the Lord brings judgment upon them. And Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God by doing this. Not just to your brothers. You've lied to God and Sapphira shows up and she makes the lie again. And you can, I mean, it's basically all the things opposite. It's hypocritical love. Oh, we love the brethren, you know, showing up with our gift. It's impure. Well, if I love these people, maybe I'll get some status in the community. And it's not fervent. I mean, it's bare, they're, they're, hold, they're holding back. They're not stretching out. But then on the other hand, as a picture of what this, this sort of loving family could look like, I think of Ruth in the first chapter. <laughs> when, when Naomi is telling her about all the reasons why it's a bad idea to follow her to Bethlehem. And she plants her flag of, yeah, I heard all the things and and Orpah's already gone back because, yeah, that's actually a pretty good argument. I probably won't have a husband. I probably will be poor when I go there. And so I'm going to go back to Moab. But but Ruth is committed to Naomi. And so she, she's not faking it. She wasn't just crying, oh, I love you, Naomi, and then going to leave. She, she has a pure love. There's no reason to follow Naomi except for the fact that she is committed in covenant love to her. And it's fervent when she says, go from me. She says, do not, do not command me to depart from you. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. Emphatically, I am not going to depart from you. That, that is sincere, pure, fervent love. Uh, for you, is that... Which of these two postures, the Ananias and Sapphira or the Ruth, what posture of your heart do you have when you're joining the Christian fellowship? I mean, (laughs) it is so sly and insidious of our enemy and our own sinful hearts to, yeah, well, I'll show up to this thing and I'm going to be to be very aware of how I treat people because ultimately I'm seeking some place and status and trying to get something. And it just, yeah, I, I, all that I can think is the way out of it because it's so 
it's so subtle, is before you ever show up to church or to a fellowship thing to pray that the Lord would give you this love and that he would rid you of the, of the Ananias and Sapphira way of doing things, the electioneering, sort of wheeling and dealing. And Peter will speak more to that, and I'll get into the details later. But he ends this section on the family by talking about why it is that they should approach the family this way. They have consecrated their lives to God, and so it changes the way they live. He tells them how they're supposed to live, but ultimately he, he roots it in the fact that there's something going on with this Christian family that they're a part of, which is that it's an incorruptible family. This isn't, as Peter puts it, um, you, you have not been born by corruptible seed. And he, and he follows that up with the imagery from Isaiah chapter 40, with the, the all flesh is as grass and the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower fades. All of that, the, the fleshly family, apart from God, we had that in there, the, the mere human family is, is withering away. It's corruptible. It's not going to last forever. And maybe we have a hard time understanding how an ancient person would have thought about their families, but I, I don't know. Um, it, it was a way of immortality, in a sense, for pagan, you know, people in the ancient world. Is yeah, I know I'm going to have to die, but as long as I have this line that perpetuates, then I can sort of secure my life in the world. You, you think about those chapters right after the fall with Cain's family naming cities after their sons. They're multiplying. They're securing their life with all these fleshly means. But in the end, what happens to the city of Cain? What happens to all those people who, who tried to secure their life in the flesh? Swept away by the flood. Or the Tower of Babel. Oh, maybe we can all gather together. We can arise and, and, and have this position of pro- prominence in the, in the cosmos. Dashed to pieces. That the fleshly, the, the mere human family is ready to pass away. But, he says, you ha- you're, you've not been born from above. He keeps bringing up that imagery, the, the new birth. You've not been born again with corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And from Isaiah again, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Now this was the word which, which uh, sorry, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And so these, these people, contrary to the family that they think is most essential, that, that one is fit to pass away, they are a part of a family that's been born by the incorruptible, powerful word of God. And that quote from Isaiah 40, you have to sort of put it in context, and I'm glad I asked Chris to read it. And um, he, it's the day of salvation, and it's describing, you know, comfort my people, the, her wars are ended, I've, I've dealt with her sin, I, I'm going to make straight the paths in the wilderness, and why all of this? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. All of that salvation, all of the restoration that's being described in that chapter Why is it going to come to pass? Because God has said it will. And what God has said about me, if he has said, you are alive in Christ, that's real. If he said that about you, 
that you are a part of a family born from heaven, that is more substantial than this room that we're looking around at. It's the real thing. And so we, we, we should be driven to love for the brothers and the sisters because this family isn't going to pass away. This is the family that we will have forever. And <laughs> let's start now living like we will when we can very clearly say we're living before the face of God. It's, it, the veil is, is pulled back and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. We can taste of that now as the word is bringing us to life. And, and so I ask you the question, do, do, you think about, do you think about it that way? That the people in this room are real family to you. And that, that's why I began with that image of the foreign exchange family. It's just like, it's like yeah, well, uh, this will be over in 45 minutes and I'll be out of here. Or it's so wonderful to be here with these people that I will worship the Lord and have communion with forever. So that's the, that's the family that we're a part of. That's the heavenly family and the way that we should reckon with our life and the way we should love each other. And then Peter shifts his metaphor in the second half. This is starting in chapter two, uh, to food, to a heavenly food. And first of all, he, he begins with a false food. And you might be looking here at the passage and saying, I don't see him saying anything about food until, chapter, or until verse two. But the, the verb structure here, he's, he's describing the thing that has to happen first before they can move on to the main command. And so uh, I, if you have an ESV, I think the translation is very nice because it, it says, lay aside all malice and desire the pure milk. So there's this thing that you have to do first if you're going to have the true food. You have to get rid of the bad stuff if you're really going to have the good thing that the Lord is laying out for you. And he gives this list, again, in chapter 2, therefore laying aside all malice, it's actually all evil, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, or speaking against others. So, you know, if we had a, a translation that said all evil, I wonder if you stopped there what would come to mind Lay aside all evil. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, doing all those lustful things. I'm not going to drink, you know, till I'm drunk. That, that might be where our mind goes to evil, but lay aside all evil. And what he starts to describe is things that we probably are a little too close to home. Deceit or guile. Like sort of wheeling and dealing, looking out for your angle, how you can get your way. Hypocrisy, again, it's, it's the imagery of putting on a mask, like an actor, faking the way that you relate to people. Envy, being, envy is really being grieved at the good of others. You find out this other person, like, you know, parent, you find out that this other person's child is going to a really nice college, and you... Instead of being delighted, you're sort of didn't want to know that news or whatever it is. 
grieved at the good of others. In, that's what envy is. And then evil speaking or speaking against people. I, I really do think this probably, you know, we could have a taxonomy of what, what's speaking against people. What, what comes to mind? Well, slander. You know, just say, you know, oh, saying something about a person where you make them out to sound worse. Um, gossip. And those are, there's, there's an overlap, overlap there. And this list if you think about it, what, what characterizes all the things in this list of evils is that they're how the world tends to secure their life. You know, you think about guile. It's like, you know, you show up to the, to the, to the gathering and you're, you're watching your back. Oh, I better not say something because then I might lose my spot, or I, I better cozy up to the right person and tell them the thing. And, and it's all about trickery and trying, trying to get your way. And, you know, hypocrisy, you're faking it before the people. Ultimately, you don't really love these people. You're grieved at their good. And you're, the second you have it, if you're thinking like, oh, this person is in my way to the top, I'm going to slander them, I'm going to participate in gossip and all that sort of thing. I mean, really, I think... All of these are very common to the way a worldly social context goes. But it's also this worldly food, if you'll follow my metaphor here, is also really vicious. It, it leads to just sapping your energy and your life and, and sickness. And if you think about the cycle that might go on here, if you were expecting when you showed up at a group of people that they were going to be talking about you behind your back, what are you probably going to do? Guile, hypocrisy, and then it just goes around in a circle. Okay? Everybody's watching their back because nobody can trust each other. And... (laughs) I mean, argue that all these things are, are worldly ways of self-preservation. When you come here, are you preserving yourself in this way, watching your back, talking about people behind their back? And, and maybe you'd say no, but are you countenancing? Are you, are you letting it go on in front of your face and not saying something about it? And, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that, it, that being silent is really powerful. I mean, so, you know, confronting it, I think that has a place, and we're called to it in the scriptures. But if somebody starts trying to gossip to you, and you just don't respond, I mean, that, I've had a few interactions in my life where somebody said something just sinful to me, and I just stared at them. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well... That's, uh, I thought you'd pat me on the back for this, but you didn't. And so I would really encourage you at least be silent, you know, because it might be a group setting, and confront each other about this. This, this way of living, of, of all these vices, evils that he's describing, will, will sap the life of our congregation and will just make us sick to our stomach. You leave the gathering that you were at and you're just thinking, like, oh, oh, did I start second-guessing yourself? Like, uh, is this going to go wrong for me? Are they going to be talking about me afterwards? That will destroy us. 
it ha- and Peter says, get rid of it. Lay it aside. That, get rid of that false food. And instead, long for the true food is where he goes there, the, the pure milk of the word. And it's actually, it's interesting because that word for pure is the opposite of guile. It's guileless. I mean, you know, in the metaphor of milk, it's like it's not mixed with fake stuff. It's real. It's good milk. Okay. And it's the, the word of God speaking to us. The, the, the power that we have, it's not these ways that the world secures their life, but the way we have security is by God speaking his truth to us. And there's no lies in that word. There's no guile in God's word. And so he, he tells us that we should long for that word. And don't forget, as, as you think about being in the word as, as it's written down in your scriptures and you're reading it, hearing it preached or counseling each other with it, that those wor- the word of God, it's the same God who made everything by words. It's powerful. It, can, it, it brought everything to life and it can bring us to life more and more and, and sustain us. It's that milk imagery. But I, it's, it's a wonderful picture that Peter gives here of, of how we ought to desire the, the milk because he says, as newborn babes. Um, so we've got a congregation where this illustration probably hits home pretty easily. Lots of newborn babes around. And, uh, and the thing about a newborn baby is that it's just constantly asking to eat, always. You know, later on, there's these protracted periods of time. I, I can wait a long time before I eat, believe it or not. But a baby is just asking all the time for milk. And that is the way we're supposed to be longing for God to speak to us. And, and also, think about how the baby is seeking that milk, just screaming for it, and crying out to God, please. And, and, and yeah, I, I think it's tempting when we, when we hear this p- picture of, like, I, I should really long for God's word to feel guilty because we think, you know, honestly, I don't want to read another theology book. That's not the point. I hope that you've had a point where you're sitting under the preaching of the word or you're reading your Bible and, and, and it hits home in a way that gives you life. And it's, it's the case that oftentimes it doesn't feel like that. that, that and it's still doing its work. Don't misunderstand the Lord is working, but when you know that it can give you life and you, you're crying out to God, please, please give, revive me. I'm so weak. I need this. That, that should be us. And, and, and wherever you can get it, you're looking for it. And I'm not, I'm not even, you know, this is not tooting the the preacher's horn of, you better be listening to me and really liking this, you know. <laughs> I understand that sometimes it's, it doesn't have the savor that, that it really should, and yet you should want it to, and you should de- want to delight in it, and you should want it to give you life so that you keep on asking that he would make it that way. You know, I, I went, 
I, I went to church and I feel like I, didn't, I was so distracted. I couldn't cry out to him. Please give me life through your word. And that, that is what it means to be this newborn baby. Please, God, give me this. And so it's food for us needy little newborn babies. And it, and it causes us to grow, that we can grow like, think about Psalm 2. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season. That is what God can do through his word. But he ends by quoting from Psalm uh, 34. He says, all this, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious or good. And in the context of that psalm, it's, it's all these uh, descriptions of God's deliverance. And, and so the psalmist comes to this, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's, he's saying, remember all the ways the Lord has delivered you and see how good, taste and see how good he is in his character, in how he's treated you. Do you want to be like him? And here, the specific context is, is for us to think, Lord, now revealed in the Son. And so when I'm going to the Word, it's, I, I think sometimes we're just looking for things to do. Like, I, I'm going to open the Bible because I need to know what to do in this situation in my life. And that's certainly there. I mean, I thank the Lord for all of the commands, but there's so much to savor in just looking at him and his deliverance and growing in our trust that he will deliver us. And that, you know, if, if you come to the scriptures not just to try to get some, some steps for your system, but you come to behold God and his deliverance and to grow in your trust, that I think will grow your tasting and seeing that the Lord is good as you're in the word. That you'll taste Christ as you come to the word. And so this, this picture again of the, of the newborn babes, is, is this, I, I mean, what, do you think this is, would describe you as a, as a baby? Just give me your truth. Show me yourself. Make me to taste of you. Well, it's a command. <laughs> so Peter assumes that they need to be told to do it. And, and, and we need to be aware of the fact that, yes, I, I fail and I fall short of this picture of this baby longing. And God has commanded me to do it, and he will give me the strength to do what he commands. So I, I encourage you all and myself to be praying, make me like that newborn babe. And make me to taste how, how good and gracious you are in your word. So as we began, I, I had that picture of being plopped down into the middle of this foreign family. And I asked you to think if that's how you approach the church. Are you just putting up with the brothers here? Well, as long as you are a part primarily of the fleshly family of the world, then, you know, all these descriptions, corruptible seed, you know, grass withers, it fades, all that 
tangled web of, of deceit and all that sort of stuff, that, that will be your life. But God has, has laid out for us this wonderful life in his kingdom and covenant. He's described it under its inheritance and, and being brought into his salvation. But here in this picture of being a part of his blessed family before his face, we should, we should want that. And, and ask God to get rid of all of this fleshly, tangled, dying, decaying stuff that we bring in here. Can't, God, please help me to lay this aside and instead have this sense that my whole life is yours and that my whole life is before you. And, and and, and so cons- he, he says that even though ultimately we're consecrated by God, we stir up the grace given to us and we consecrate our lives by dependence upon him. So consecrate your life to him. Let, live your life before him and go to him in that context like that little baby crying out, give me life in, by your word, speak to me, quicken me. You made all things by the word of your power. Do it again in me, please. And in that context, all these admonitions about how to treat each other are going to be possible. We can love each other with this brotherly, without hypocrisy sort of love, fervently, without hearts directed in all these tangled other reasons, impure loves. We can have that as we depend upon that pure milk of the word before his face. And in that context, in this family, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. That by your word, you have borne us from above by your spirit so that we are now partakers of your kingdom, of your blessings, of your inheritance in Christ. We've been brought into so great a salvation, been set apart for holy living. We have you as our father, and we have these people here as our brothers and sisters. And we pray that you would help us to live for you among each other, and that this would make all men know that we're your disciples, and that they would be drawn to this family that is born from heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please stand with me now as we respond to the Lord. We're going to open to 410, and this tune is unfamiliar.